Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Uh, John Cross is here tonight. He and his wife Janice came down from Canada. They had to almost uh, fight their way through a blizzard coming out of Alberta this morning. So they flew out of, it was like zero or minus five there when they left and landed here, and it was 80. So they went from winter to summer in three hours. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship. I I didn't get to watch the news today, so I don't have to worry about that. I know some of you are still wrestling with those kinds of issues. And so you may need an extra five minutes, but you'll just have to do that quietly on your own. It's interesting times in which we live. So we'll have a few minutes, a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess any known sin. First John 1 9, make sure you're in fellowship and we're ready to focus on the study of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have your word that is a sure and certain guide to our thinking, that it is on the basis of your word and in the light of your word that we see light, that we come to understand truth. And it is on the basis of that truth that we are able to understand our lives and we're able to properly interpret the events around us and to see the trends of history. And we know that you are in control. And that no matter how unstable and uncertain things may appear, no matter what the anxiety may level may be among those around us, we know that because of our position in Christ, because of our place in your plan, that we can relax and focus on our mission, which is to be a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ through evangelism, but also to be a witness before the angels and others and mankind because of our, our faith in you and trust in our spiritual growth. Father, keep our focus on the task at hand in light of what, what you are doing in preparing us and training us for our future role and responsibility in the kingdom. And we pray that you would help us to focus, keep, our, keep away the distractions in our thinking tonight, that the, God the Holy Spirit would help us to understand the things that we study that we may be thoroughly equipped, thoroughly prepared to face the life that we have. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
We've been in Hebrews chapter 9. I'm just going to put the verse up here for just a moment as we start. Hebrews 9.15, for this reason, He, Jesus Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, that's the payment for sin that that occurred in the Old Testament, that those who are called, that is a term that refers to those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior, those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So those who are called look back, that term looks back to phase one, justification, salvation that occurs when we put our faith alone in Christ alone. That instant we are regenerated. God, the Holy Spirit, gives us a new human spirit and we have a new life. We move from spiritual death to spiritual life and that occurred whenever you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That those who are called may receive. Now that indicates a shift in time from the past response at phase one to the future phase three glorification and then reward at the judgment seat of Christ. So that indicates um, the purpose for church age believers has to do with that future inheritance. So we began a study couple of weeks ago on the doctrine of inheritance. And the important thing to see in the doctrine of inheritance is what we see in Colossians 3, 23 to 24. And that is that inheritance is related to something that is earned and identified as a reward. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. So there's two things that we have to keep in mind. Number one is that salvation is not a reward. It is a free gift. Ephesians 2.89, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Second, we have rewards that are promised on the basis of service, on the basis of obedience. And it's easy in some passages to become confused. And there, the trend from so many in the evangelical world today and in past centuries has been to confuse these two uh, types of passages so that Salvation becomes linked to a uh, a work in, in a backdoor sense. And of course, there's the Arminian position that sort of front doors works, but there are many evangelicals who backdoor works so that if the works aren't there, then you weren't really saved. We usually refer to that position as lordship salvation. That's more of a modern designation because there are those like, John MacArthur, uh, out in Southern California, who's very well known on the radio, uh, who emphasizes that faith in Christ is submitting to his lordship. So that's the idea there is that when you believe in Jesus, it's not simply trusting in Christ or believing certain truths about him, that he's the Messiah, that he's the eternal second person of the Trinity, incarnate in humanity who died on the cross for our sins, but that faith really has the idea of commitment. And if you look the word faith up, 
in any thesaurus. You're not going to find commitment as a synonym. So there's some fundamental errors that are made, but that's the idea in Lordship Salvation is that people are to commit their life to Christ. And if they haven't committed their life to Christ, are committed themselves in obedience or submission to the sovereignty of God, then they're not really saved. It's just a head knowledge and not a uh, a heart knowledge. And they bring in that little uh, truism that is often repeated in churches that sounds nice but uh, is is totally fraudulent. How can you belief is a matter of understanding certain propositions, certain statements. And the term proposition is really a technical term. A proposition in logic is any statement that can be verified or falsified. A question, what's the temperature outside? That can't be verified or falsified. It's, it's a question, a command. Go get me a cup of coffee. That can't be verified or falsified. That's, that's a command. But a statement, it, there's snow on the ground outside. Well, that can be verified or falsified. Jesus is the Son of God. That can be verified or falsified. It's either true or it's false. So that's what a proposition is. And no one has direct, uh, immediate knowledge of Jesus. Not one of us ever saw Jesus. Not one of us has ever uh, had that personal encounter with Jesus. Uh, no one we know has had a personal encounter with Jesus, despite the fact that we may know some odd people. No one has ever had a personal encounter with Jesus. They have only known about him through the statements of the Scripture. John says in John uh, John 20, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life through his name. That's a proposition. These are written, these propositions, these statements about Jesus that you read about all the way through the Gospel of John. These are propositions. These can be, uh, they're, they're either true or they're false. They can be verified or falsified. And so we only know Jesus through the statements of Scripture. And so we come to Scripture and we believe these statements. Now some people say, well, that's an awfully cold, impersonal kind of uh, of religion is Christianity all about a relationship? It is, but the relationship comes after you put your faith in Jesus Christ. At, at the, that instant, and we're adopted into the family of God. We are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection through the baptism of God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. The Father and the Son take up residence in us, and then a relationship begins. But that's not the starting point. It doesn't matter if you have a relationship with Jesus. That's not going to get you into heaven. Judas had a relationship. He had a personal, he had a close personal relationship with Jesus. And that isn't going to get him into heaven. It's trusting in Jesus Christ as the one who died on the cross for our sins and that believing that, trusting in him, uh, accepting, that's an, receiving him, that's another synonym that the scripture uses. Uh, that's what faith is. It is believing something to be true and, and relying upon it. It's not this idea of committing to it. Now, when you get into the Gospels, which is where we are headed eventually when we get down to about point 13 or 14, and we're about point 8 now, 
Uh, when we get down to about point 13 or 14, we'll get into some of these gospel passages. And what's really tricky there is that statements about inheritance are closely united in statements that also talk about salvation. So you have to pay attention to context, and you have to look at these verses and say, what's a work and what is a gift? What's a reward and what is something that is uh, freely given as a result of, of faith in Christ? And we usually refer to some of these statements as discipleship statements where Jesus says, if you want to be a disciple, then you need to take up your cross daily and follow me. Well, some people will say, well, that's, I take those as all salvation verses. But if that's a salvation verse, then salvation is based on doing something. It's not based on simply believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but you have to do something else. Now, everybody who gets rewarded has eternal life, but not everybody who has eternal life is going to get rewarded or have an inheritance. And as we saw last time, there are two kinds of inheritance that are spoken of specifically in in Romans. So I want to go back and just pick up a little review, starting with point six. I'm not going to go all the way back to the first point. We'll just start at point six, recognizing that our airship is based on adoption and sonship. Therefore, inheritance is related to our position in Christ. Uh, Romans 8, 16, and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That comes about through adoption, which is true of every person when they trust Christ as Savior. When a person trusts Jesus Christ as Savior, God does a number of different things in every believer's life. I've seen these categorized and enumerated. I I know one person who says 185 different things God does for you at the point of salvation. And then there's others. It's uh, Originally, in Lewis Berry Chafer's systematic theology, he had, I forget, it was 33 or 34 things and that were listed and and he, one category is that we have a, a close relationship with God the Holy Spirit and then it lists all of the uh ministries of God the Holy Spirit in dwelling giving spiritual gifts fit, filling all of those are just subcategories of one of one point so somebody can come along break those out into individual points and now you have you know five more things that God does for you at the uh, point of salvation. So it doesn't matter how many numbers there are, but there's just a, a, a vast number of things that God does for every person at the instant of salvation, and they're not experiential. And what I mean by that is you don't feel it when it happens. You don't suddenly have this little vibration or charge that goes through you, and now you know that, that you're saved. Yeah, you may be sick, you may have the flu, you may be hanging on a cross like the thief next to Jesus, and he certainly didn't get the rosy glow and have an ecstatic experience as he was hanging there being crucified when uh, Jesus said, well, today I will see you in paradise. So it's it's not experiential. It's only after you're saved, after you are regenerate, and have the Holy Spirit as you go through the Scripture and begin to study, you realize and you learn all of these tremendous things that God did for us at the instant of salvation, and they're the resources that every believer has. It gives us tremendous potential. Every believer has access to the same uh, same uh, 
power of the Holy Spirit. Every believer has access to the same uh, position that he has in Christ. Every believer has all of these things without distinction. And one of those is that we're all members of God's royal family. We are all children of God. And that qualifies us, verse 17 says, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And I pointed out last time that this is really an important verse, and it's important because we have to, uh, it, it identifies two categories of inheritance. There is an inheritance that is related to God. We are heirs of God, and there is a second heirship that is joint heirship with Christ. The way the English Bibles tra uh, translate this and punctuate the sentence make it look as if these are synonymous, and that's how I've got this on the screen uh, in front of you. The phrase heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ indicate a, that there's a uh, synonymous relationship between the two and that every child of God gets these two types of, of airship. The problem is there's this conditional clause that follows the phrase joint heirs with Christ. It says, if, we, if indeed we suffer with him. That seems to put a condition on inheritance, on all inheritance, that is related to suffering with Jesus. You can believe in Jesus, but if you don't suffer, have you really been saved? And, and there would say some that would say, well, if you haven't suffered, and of course then you have to define what suffering means, because what suffering to one person may not be suffering to another person, but we have to go back and look at what, how that particular word is used. And that word is used to describe uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his spiritual growth in passages such as Hebrews 2.10, where God the Father took him through various sufferings, uh, the, the adversity of living in a fallen world where he matured. And he set that pattern as he faced all these different kinds of adversity or testings that we face. He handles them the same way we can handle them through the Spirit of God and through the Word of God. And so he set the precedent for us, and he set the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. The precedent for the spiritual life of the church age is not in the Mosaic Law. And that's another problem not only Lordship Salvation has, but this was a problem that coming out of the Roman Catholic Church that all of the th theologies of the Reformation had. They, they got justification right, but they weren't real clear on sanctification, which is the spiritual life. And so they were trying to grow spiritually by uh, bootstrap spirituality and, and just do by performing works, by being obedient without understanding the role of the Holy Spirit. And one of the dominating theologies throughout all that period was what we call Reformed theology or Calvinism. And what's interesting is you go back and you read Calvinistic theology as rich of a heritage as it is, and as much as it contributed to our understanding of the Bible, and even though I don't agree with uh, Calvinistic uh, theology in many areas, historically we have to recognize that that Calvinistic theology shaped Western civilization in magnificent ways, 
primarily because of the high view of God that it had and the low view of man that it had. And what I mean by a low view of man, it recognized that man was a corrupt sinner and could do nothing to improve himself spiritually and that man is not basically good but basically evil. Man is basically a sinner. And that the implications of their high view of God and their low view of man were profound and changed Western Western civilization. And for that, we can be grateful. Nearly everybody who was in all the colonists in America in the 16th and early 17th century came out of a Calvinistic or a Reformed heritage for the most part. And they were Scots-Irish Presbyterians and, and Congregationalists and they were uh, independent Baptists from England, and they were very, uh, very Calvinistic as well. But the problem in that that whole system, uh, as with Lutheran theology, was that after you get justified by faith alone, you're you're basically being sanctified by works. Your spiritual growth is through morality, and they didn't understand the ministries of the Holy Spirit. And I was amazed when I was taking a doctoral course in, in, uh, at Dallas Seminary back in the 80s, and we had to do a certain amount of extra, extra uh, curricular reading. And the two books that were supposed to be the best theologies on God the Holy Spirit uh, were, were one was written by John Owens, called, just called the Holy Spirit. He was the premier... Uh, Calvinist Puritan theologian in England, and he was uh, Oliver Cromwell's uh, chaplain and and chief of staff. And he's he was just I mean when you look at him in context, he was just absolutely brilliant. And then the second work was a work by a man named Abraham Kuyper, who again was an absolutely brilliant individual. He was not only a uh, one of the premier theologians within the Dutch Reformed uh, denomination in Holland in the late 19th century, but he was the uh, he was the uh, president or premier of, of Holland, uh, prime minister of Holland, and was just you know brilliant in many many areas. And he wrote a, I mean these are 400, 500, 600 page books in eight point print. You know they didn't you know, do 14-point print with a lot of white space like we do today to get a big book. Uh, it was, I mean, this is detailed material, but what's interesting is they leave out things like the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. You can't even find a chapter on the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then if you also try to look for spiritual warfare, you don't find uh, Calvinist theology, Reformed theology, trying to deal with spiritual warfare until the 20th century. Once they came under attack from the Charismatics, and the Charismatics started making a big deal about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit, then all of a sudden in the 20th century, the Reformed camp starts trying to make up for lost time. But up until 1900, there was just nothing there about the role of the Holy Spirit in the spiritual life of a believer. It was all just sort of bootstrap Christian life. Just just go out and be moral and obey the Bible, and you're going to grow spiritually. No understanding of, of the role of, of God the Holy Spirit. And so all of this ties together because it, it they, they don't recognize a distinction between a carnal Christian 
someone who is a believer and justified, but their whole life just produces dead works, and a believer who is uh, who is walking by means of the Spirit and therefore is growing and advancing uh, in the spiritual life. And if you don't have a category for the carnal, rebellious, apostate believer, then you end up making works your ultimate tool to evaluate if a person's saved or not. Well, you look at that person. Look at what they did. Look at where they go. How can they be saved? And immediately when you make those statements, you're arguing, subtly maybe, but you're arguing that works is the basis for salvation. And so they are, they would link, link these two things together. And you have one airship, everybody gets it, and so everybody gets to heaven with all the same thing. I pointed out last time that it's all about punctuation, and in the original Greek there's no punctuation. So I always enjoy this little, having fun with the little exercise, with the statement, woman without her, man is nothing, can be punctuated two different ways. One way where it says, it, you put in two commas, it's basically saying woman uh, without her, man is nothing. So your main phrase there is man is nothing, whereas if you only put a comma after man, what you're saying is woman is nothing. In the first case, a man without a woman is nothing. In the second case, a, um, a woman uh, without a man is nothing. And so it's all in where you put the commas. And so if we repunctuate Romans 8.17 so that there's no comma after so we put a comma after God and no comma after Christ, then we have a phrase that if we're children, then we're heirs of God. And in addition to that, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. And that word suffers, that same word that's used to describe Jesus advancing his humanity as he dealt with the testing and the things that he faced as he was maturing in his own spiritual life in his humanity. And so if we go through that process with him, if there is spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, which is when we're walking by the Spirit and we're producing, uh, the, God the Holy Spirit is producing fruit and growth in our life, then that is what is rewarded and what's rewardable, and that becomes the basis for uh, inheritance. In point seven, I pointed out that heirship means to shape the destiny, uh, to share the destiny of Christ. Christ has an eternal destiny, and we share that as we share his election. And there are some key verses to look at in regard to this. Ephesians 1.11, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been uh, also, and it could be translated also, we have received an inheritance, having been uh, predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And then 1 Peter 1.3. Now, 1 Peter 1 is a key chapter for understanding inheritance. We're going to come back in about two points, and we're going to look at verse 4 and look at verse 5 in 1 Peter chapter 1. So let's remember that. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, this is past tense when we trusted Christ as our Savior, to a living hope that's future. The living hope, hope in Scripture in the New Testament, means a confident expectation. It is a confident expectation of a future reality. Hope is always oriented to what is going to happen in the future. And that hope is tied in this passage to verse 4 
when it talks about inheritance. So the hope is looks forward to that inheritance that God has reserved for us till until there is phase three glorification. Now, as we understand this, we move from understanding that heirship is sharing the destiny of Christ, and then we have to ask, answer the question, so what exactly is Christ's heirship? And we, I pointed out last time, he's an heir because of who he is, not because of what he did. Matthew twenty-one twenty-eight deals with the parable of the landowner sending his son. He's a son before he's sent, and he is the heir before he is sent. But he qualifies for his inheritance by the things that he suffered. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. So, I looked at Psalm 8.3 through uh, 5, which, or 8.3 through 6, which focuses on the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of, as man, is created lower than the angel so that he can fulfill the original destiny of Adam to be elevated over uh, all of God's creation, that mankind, the human race, will eventually rule. And at Christ's ascension, he's at the right hand of the Father. And at Christ's ascension, it is a man who is now sitting at the helm of the universe. And this is picked up and quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 6 through 8. And we point out, I point out verse 8, you um, that the writer of Hebrews applies this by saying, For in that he put all in subjection under him, the first he there is God the Father, in that he, God the Father, put all in subjection under him, that is Jesus Christ, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. That won't happen until the future when Jesus Christ comes to the Father, Revelation chapter 4 and 5 as the Lamb and takes the scroll from the Father's hand, the title deed for, for the earth, and then begins to open those seals to establish his authority over the planet during the tribulation period. So that takes us up to point 9. Inheritance is both a present reality and a future possession, uh, according to First Peter 1, 4, and 5. Now, the translation I'm using in these slides is from the New King James, and the New King James translated the first part of 1 Peter 1.4 the same way it had translated uh, Ephesians 1.11 that we looked at a minute ago to obtain an inheritance, but that idea of obtain isn't there. It is simply that we were born again to a living hope to an inheritance. It is, there's not a verbal idea there. It's it just stating that that is uh, an aspect, a reason that we were saved is for that inheritance, and then there are three adjectives that describe the inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled, and won't fade away. It is permanent. One aspect of this that is so important is it's related to eternal security. We can't lose a certain aspect of, these, of this inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It's reserved, and the word there that's, the Greek word there that's translated reserved is the word tereo, which means to be protected or to be kept. It's the same word that Jesus uses in his high priestly prayer when he says that, he prays to the Father that, that he keeps us. It's one of the key words that we 
have in the Gospel of John for eternal security. So it is an extremely strong word for the preservation of this inheritance. It is reserved or kept or preserved in heaven uh, for you. And then I put a note there at the end as a reminder that the inheritance there is the hope that we have. We're future-looking. And so that the, the main point here is we, I keep reiterating, we're living today in light of that future reality. That's what has to become so real to us. Faith is, when we come to the Scripture and, and walking by faith, it's when the truths of the Scripture are more real to us then our experience, the things that we go through, the, our, our emotions, the difficulties we face in life. Uh, faith is trusting that what God reveals to us in his word is true and accurate, no matter what uh, experiential evidence may, uh, may seem to say. And this applies to areas in science, like in, in the creation-evolution debate. We see... Darwinist evolutionists coming up with the old earth view. They have all kinds of evidence, all kinds of data. The propaganda machine in the public schools is in high gear. And so uh, the average person just thinks it's silly to think that the earth isn't old. And the average Christian thinks that too. It's become convinced because of all this propaganda running around that the earth is old. But there's no evidence for an old earth. In fact, the evidence, there's a lot of scientific evidence for a young earth and a lot of scientific evidence. It says the, 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 the age, the, the evidence that they use for an old earth just doesn't fit. And there's some really technical uh, DVDs out that Institute for Creation Research has produced as a result of their RATE project um, that is, uh, that's an acronym for the real age of the earth. And they had that they had about a ten-year uh, study, and one of the things that I'm thinking about next year for the Chafer Conference, as we look at the issue of evolution and creation, is having one of their guys come out here uh, and talk about give that evidence in a couple of sessions, so that people are more familiar uh, with all of the evidence that's there for the, for a, for a young Earth. But it happens in science. We look out there, the experience of looking at these fossils, the experience of uh, sci certain scientific data. I said, well, the earth's got to be old. Well, wait a minute. The Bible seems to suggest that it's young. So the, the truth of God's word has to be more real to us than uh, experience. People go out and they have experiences with, with the supernatural, and they think that they've encountered demons or spirits. And they get involved in all kinds of things. And I've seen uh, just a, a major trend in the last 50 years among missionaries that go out into uh, on the edge of civilization dealing with, with a lot of uh, uh, very uh, primitive Stone Age tribes and they'll encounter all kinds of animism and spiritism. And then they come back and they say, well, we led this person or that person, this other person to the Lord. We know they're saved and yet they're still demon-possessed. Or they were, they, the demon possession came back on them. And so they're looking at a certain behavior pattern in somebody, and they're saying that on the basis of their limited finite knowledge, they're able to truly assess whether or not this person is demon possessed, or whether or not they're just emotionally unstable. 
And we have to make a decision on the basis of Scripture that Scripture teaches that a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. So either they're not a Christian, but if they've made a clear statement that they believe in Christ as their Savior, then that means that whatever is going on isn't demon possession, it's something else. You, you have to make the truth of God's Word more real to you than your experience. When you are going through difficult times in life, and that is very likely in the coming uh, coming years, especially in light of what's happened with the with the economy and many of the decisions uh, that that are being made that have been made and we're going to see a very different financial uh, picture I believe in the next decade than we've seen for the last uh, 30 or 40 years we've had an expansive growing economy ever since World War II but if you go back and you look at the charts on the growth of the stock market after the depression, after the Great Depression, the stock market crashed in 29, the Great Depression in the, in the early part of the 30s, that it took decades before people really had restored confidence in the market. And the growth pattern through the 30s and the 40s and 50s is, is just barely above flat. And that's because there wasn't much of a uh, trust in the market. And yet there's still there was still a progression and... Uh, there was a lot of prosperity during that time, especially coming out, out of World War II. But it wasn't as fast. You didn't see that dynamism that we've had in the last 30 years. And some of you remember the recessions in the 70s. And so we, we've just gotten used to, to and I, I believe it was probably artificial, a lot of this, this growth that seemed to be there the last 20 years or so. And now we're going to see a different environment. And for some people, that's going to become very difficult. Some people are going to face uh, the inability to pay their mortgage. Some people are going to lose their job. Uh, we're in Houston, and it won't be as difficult for us as other places. But it doesn't matter if you're whether you're in New York or in Houston. If you lose your job and can't get one for a year, it doesn't matter whether you're in the best place or the worst place in the world. It still impacts you in in uh, uh, ways that are are very tough to deal with, and so it's going to depend upon the doctrine that's in your soul and your ability to focus on what God is doing in your life and how God is training you and preparing you for that future orientation. That means keeping your eye on God's plan and what he is ultimately doing uh, doing in your life and preparing you for a future ministry in the kingdom. So we have... In 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5, where uh, this inheritance is kept for us and us, and <clears throat> we are protected, verse 5. And that's that same word in the Greek that's used over there in Philippians uh, 4, 5, and 6, that, uh, be, uh, um, that we are to pray to God, uh, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God in the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard, shall defend, shall garrison or fortify, strengthen your heart. That's the same word that's used there. So we are protected. We are guarded. We, there's a fortification that occurs in our soul by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that word salvation there is not talking about phase one justification, but
but phase three, glorification, when we are absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, uh, the rapture occurs, and we are there present at the judgment seat of Christ. So inheritance becomes a present reality because we understand what it is, and it motivates us and strengthens us today because that future hope is so real to us now that it is more real than whatever uh, negative experiences there might be. Ephesians 1.11, which we I've used already in other places, states the same idea. Also, we have obtained an inheritance. We have, and that's the verb, klerao, uh, uh, which is the root of kleronomos, kleronomia, the, the words for inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. There is a plan, and he is moving us in terms of that, that future realization of the plan. And then when we go to a couple of verses later in Ephesians, uh, in him also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So that our inheritance is related to the promise of God the Holy Spirit. And that is he seals us in our relationship with God. It's a sealing is a sign of his his ownership. Now, I've, somehow in here I left a point out, and these verses go with another point, um, that God the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. Uh, Ephesians 1.14, as well as um, Galatians 4, uh, 4. Okay, I've got my notes and the slides are off one. Air, uh, point number 10, airship means eternal security. It's an inheritance that's undefiled, which we just saw in 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5, also Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. It means that we can't lose, that because it's grounded in Christ, it can't be lost. And we're identified with Christ, and we're placed in Christ And that is a position that can't be shaken by anything that we do because it's all dependent upon uh, who Christ is and what he did on the cross. And as church-age believers, we receive God the Holy Spirit who is the down payment of our inheritance. And that's, again, Ephesians 1.14 and Galatians 4.6, speaking of his sealing. Sealing is like... um, You know, Texas is good cattle country. It's like getting branded. That seal is a mark of ownership. It's not visible. I can't look at you and see that. Now, I think it's the same word that's used in Revelation. I think the sealing there uh, may become visible in the second half. I'm not sure of that, but it's possible because it seems to be that there's clear clear markings. But it's, it's like a brand. What's interesting, back in the... Wild and woolly days of the Old West when they were branding cattle to, to mark ownership, what would often happen out on the range is that rustlers would come along and they would, uh, they would steal some cattle or just find some running loose out there and might have somebody else's brand on it. And what they would do is they would go out and they would, they would take, um, 
They would capture these cattle, and then they would use their the cinch rings on their saddles as a makeshift branding iron, and they would reshape the brand so that it would look from the outside as if it uh, didn't have the original brand, but it had their brand. And so they or they would have a branding iron that they would have made to fit over the original owner's brand. And then uh, the only way you could tell if the brand had been changed is to kill the animal and skin it, and then when you reverse the hide, looked on the inside of the hide, then you could see that the brand had been changed, the brand had been fixed. And I always thought that was a great illustration for a lot of Christians. They get saved, and they're sealed by the Holy Spirit, but then they live like a child of the devil for the rest of their life. They live completely immersed in the cosmic system, and you look at their life, and you can't tell if they're saved or not. You can't look at their life and see any evidence of salvation. But they are, and it's not until they die that it will become evident that, wow, they were saved after all. We will be surprised at a lot of people who are in heaven. There are presidents of this country that have made clear statements of their faith in Jesus Christ, and they will be be in heaven. Now, I know some of you want God to have different districts in heaven so that some of you know those presidents aren't in your district, but you know you won't have that sin nature trend when you get there. Neither will I. Um, so the Holy Spirit is that down payment on our inheritance. It is a seal or pledge of that future inheritance that we will receive uh, from the Lord. Ephesians 1.14, the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance, a down payment, as it were, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And here is a use of the word redemption that doesn't look back to the payment of the price for sin on the cross, but it looks forward to the ultimate uh, completion of the salvation process when we are fully glorified in the presence of God. So, point number 13. What we realize is that in the Christian life, uh, inheritance is said to, is also said to be earned and a reward. So we have these two categories of inheritance, one that's a gift, the inheritance heirs of God, and one that is a reward. Now, we're going to have to keep that in mind. So, verse point number 13, in the Christian life, or same, same point, in the Christian life, inheritance is, is earned, Hebrews 6.12, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience, and there the word is uh, makrothemia, which indicates long, endure, long endurance as opposed to uh, hupomene, which is the word that we studied in James for enduring in times of trouble. So it's there it's talking about patience. Those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now some of us, myself included, would, ha- would just have to give up on salvation if it were dependent on becoming patient. You know who you are. And we're the ones who pray for patience now. But if, if salvation is dependent upon developing patience, I'll never get to heaven. So that's a work that is related to reward. It's not talking about entering into heaven or receiving eternal life. It's talking about the reward that comes as a result of spiritual growth, inheriting the promises. Then point 14, 
Inheritance has its roots, of course, in the Old Testament, as we've seen already. And in the Old Testament with Israel, it's related to the Abrahamic covenant. And Paul picks that up in Galatians chapter 3 and makes that uh, that connection as well. And that's an uh, important passage to look at. So the point is simply inheritance in relation to Abraham can be related to the land promise or the seed promise. That is contextually, sometimes it's related to the land promise. Sometimes inheritance is related to the seed promise, the promise of a deliverer, the promise of Messiah. But it's always related to the idea of a divine promise. And we see that again and again and again is this connection between inheritance and a promise. A promise is uh, a statement that has uh, inherently a future fulfillment. Now, a key verse for this is in Galatians chapter 3, verse 18. Galatians chapter 3, verse 18. Which comes at a conclusion of a section, for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now there's a contrast here between promise and law. I'm going to see if I can switch. What happens if I try to switch programs here? Okay. We're going to... Can you all read that in the middle column? Okay. Make that a little smaller. Move this over here. And then... I just discovered this. Yeah. Oops. Didn't want to do that, did it? Okay, we'll just do it here. Okay, we're going to go to Galatians 3. Okay, window, slideshow. Okay, now I'll make it big. Now you can see that. We can move around around the text a little bit. To understand the last part of Galatians where it talks about this contrast between promise and law, we have to understand this in terms of the context. And this is a can be a confusing section to get into when you start talking about inheritance and the promise and what is what what does all this have to do with what uh, what God is promising here, and it's connected contextually with the Holy Spirit. And the way we see this is to go back to the first part of the chapter, and the key verse for really understanding this in. Okay, I'm discovering buttons that...
There we go. If you look at Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is really a key verse for understanding the whole epistle of Galatians. It's a question he asks here, but he doesn't answer until Galatians 5.16. There are three words that are used in Galatians 3.3 that are not used again until Galatians 5.16, and that's spirit and perfected and the flesh. What happens in at the time uh, that Paul wrote this was after he had gone to these cities in the southern part of Galatia, and he had many of them had been saved, after Paul left, these Judaizers came in and said, you know, you just didn't get it all with by just believing in Jesus. You have to come under the, the law, and men have to be circumcised, and you have to implement the law in order to, to grow spiritually. It's not any different from the Lordship Salvation or Reformed Theology message that, that's dominated so many evangelicals over the last four or five hundred years, that it's a, it's a way of... of growing spiritually just by doing what the Bible says to do without understanding the role of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, have, if you began by the Spirit, which they understood, that's how they got saved, by faith alone, Christ alone, the Holy Spirit regenerated them. He says, are you now being perfected or completed, matured, by the flesh? You started the spiritual life through a spiritual process of the Holy Spirit called regeneration. So now do you produce growth by the flesh or, or the sin nature? And so that is the, that's, his, that's his, his question. And that is what sets the stage here in the middle of this, in the middle of this section. He's going to then develop this. And verse 5, he says, so then does he who provides you with the spirit and and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. See, that's the contrast. Is it works or is it by faith or by promise, trusting in the promise? And then he goes to Abraham. This is his illustration of verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned or imputed to him as righteousness. And I believe that statement, as we've studied it in the past, in Genesis chapter 15 uh, verse 6 is a statement that related to Abraham's original salvation, and it should have been translated in, from the Hebrew, Abraham had already believed God, and it had been a, uh, imputed to him as righteousness. So it's a the promise is given to Abraham, and it's a promise of what he the land that he is going to possess. That's the inheritance. Inheritance is used there uh, as a synonym for uh, possession or ownership. So verse 7 he says, Paul writes, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now he's not talking physically here, he's talking spiritually. Those who believe God's promise of salvation follow in the spiritual footsteps of Abraham. God made the promise to him in the Abrahamic covenant that uh, by your seed, all will be blessed. That is the promise. We are blessed with uh, spiritual blessings by following Abraham in his uh, faith in, in God. He believed God would provide a future Savior through the Messiah. We look back to the accomplishment of that. 
So verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, all the nations will be blessed in you. He just, Paul's just extracting this uh, from the Old Testament passage. Then in verse 10 he says, For many as are under the works of the law are under a curse. Works in terms of trying to gain approbation from God apart from the Holy Spirit may make you more moral. You may memorize a lot of Scripture, lead a lot of people to the Lord, read a lot of, of the Bible, go to church a lot, but if it's done in the power of the flesh and not the power of the sin nature, then it's just wood, hay, and straw. It's not going to do anything for your spiritual uh, spiritual growth. Uh, verse 11 says, Now, no one is justified by the law before God is evident. The righteous man shall live by faith. Uh, verse 11 and 12, However, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, the one who practices them shall live by them. And the point that he's making is you can't advance by works. Faith is related to promise. And he's going, he develops this. We'll skip the next couple of verses. Um, verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that what? So that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So here the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit is part of our inheritance. It's that promise. It's part of what we possess now as believers, that current pledge, the sealing of the Spirit, that is ultimately going to be fulfilled in our uh, future inheritance. Uh, So this is how Paul develops his argument. Verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. This is one of the key verses on the importance of uh, syntax and grammar. Paul says he doesn't say antecedes as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. And so he bases his under- interpretation of that passage on the singular noun seed and says that refers to Jesus Christ, not to his physical descendants. And so he goes on, verse 18, just skipping through the He says, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So the point that he is making here is that that uh, inheritance that we have is based on a promise, and it's based on grace, and it's related to the Holy Spirit, and it's not based on works through the law. So this has to be understood, and that makes inheritance, therefore, something, even though it's earned, it is done through grace, through the Holy Spirit. So back to our PowerPoint slide to wrap up. That takes us to the 15th point, which is inheritance is related to rewards uh, for what is earned for service, whereas salvation's a free gift, back to where I started with Colossians 3:24, understanding that distinction. Now, having learned, gone through these passages, we are prepared to go into the inheritance passages used in the Gospels and to try to understand what Jesus is talking about in these various passages. You have uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, the meek or the humble will inherit the earth. What does that mean? That's in the Beatitudes. Is that for today? 
What's the significance of that in terms of inheritance? You have inheriting the earth there. You have other passages that talk about inheriting eternal life. You have other passages that talk about inheriting the kingdom. What do these terms mean? And we will come back next time and start to go through these passages. There's about eight or nine key passages in the Gospels and then in the Epistles to understand the different ways in which inheritance is talked about and the different things that are inherited and how that relates to us as believers and our future orientation. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that you have a plan that as uh, unstable and uncertain as the circumstances around us may appear, we know that we can just relax and trust in you because you are in control and that you are working out your plan and that plan includes adversity, testing, suffering for us, but it's something that we are to uh, glory in because that is the means that you have determined for our spiritual growth, our spiritual advance, and it gives us a wonderful opportunity to learn to trust you and to see what you do in our lives. Father, we just pray that you would uh, bring these things to our remembrance as we face the challenges of life, that we may apply the truth of your word consistently that you will be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.